0: Many of you know that uh, one of our sons lives up in Chicago. If you talk about Chicago there, uh, one of the things that has uh, had huge historical impact upon the city of Chicago was the Chicago Fire back in 1871. Now. One of the interesting things about the fire was that it started on one side of the Chicago River, and uh, the, the thought for many would have been, well, you know, surely it would be contained on, on that other side, but it went, it, it went roaring right across the river. There was good reason for it. One of the reasons, of course, is the wind there, and there were some wooden boats on the river moored there, but the primary reason it was able to get across the river is that at the time of the fire, uh, the river was a a shallow basically uh, ditch with sewage in it. Uh, All of uh, the waste from the Union stockyards Went in there as well as from the city itself. The river itself was flammable. And so the fire went right across and destroyed a great deal of the city. In fact, in that river, because of it, uh, it flowed into Lake Michigan, which was where Chicago got its water supply. Every year for a couple of decades, some 10,000 people would die from from disease that came from that river until ultimately, about 15 years after the fire, in one year, some 100,000 people died. Finally, the city engineers said, we've got to do something. And so what they did was they began to dig... 28 miles of canal that would connect the, the river uh, to the Desplains River, to the Illinois River, to the Mississippi River. And then once, once that was all completed, they actually moved more dirt than was moved, more earth than was moved when they dug the Panama Canal. So that was a big deal. Once that took place the engineers opened the sluice gate there at Lake Michigan, and Lake Michigan flowed into the river, literally reversing the direction. The river had never flowed that way. And it worked. There are many historians that would say that Chicago wouldn't even be there today if it wasn't for that great Feet. The American Society of Civil Engineers named it one of the engineering projects of the millennium. Now I want you to put that story on the side for a moment. It's not just an interesting story. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. But for now I want us to take a look at this passage which is continuing on with Paul's instructions to the church in Ephesus, very pointed instructions in terms of what the new community should look like. So let's give our attention here in Ephesians 5 beginning with verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you (coughs) today be our teacher even as you were to the church in Ephesus? The church that that was struggling with so many things. Your church today, Lord, desires to hear from you. And so we ask that your spirit would move among us and would reach our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I'm going to give you six applications. For those of you that haven't been here for the entire study in uh, Ephesians, what we saw in uh, the early part of this book was that God was, uh, through the Apostle Paul, talking about the identity of what it is to be a believer, talking about it from God's perspective, in terms of of his, uh, not just foreknowledge, but predestination. What comfort that would be to the church that struggled so deeply as a persecuted minority in Ephesus. And so we see the early chapters, 1 through 3, all building up what that new life in Christ looks like and what we the way we determine it is we say that's the indicative that's who we are and like he always presents it then comes the imperative the commands and it should never be reversed it shouldn't be you do this and this and this and then you can be a child of god that's not the way it works instead he talked about salvation, trusting in Christ alone for eternal life. And then because you are a child of the living God, here are the imperatives. Here are the commands. This is what the new community looks like. And it's different from the community in which we live. So let's take a look at uh, these applications he's given them just rapid fire, one after another, and I would quickly say, and we're not going to do this, but each one of them could easily be a sermon, um, but, but we're going to hit six today, and then we'll uh, uh, explore a couple of them in later messages as well. First of all, those in the new community should, ought to be making conscious decisions, verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk not as unwise, but as wise. Some of your versions may say, walk circumspectly. That means walk carefully. Look where you're going. In other words, the the believer should not just be kind of tripping through life, letting outside influences be what what causes them to uh, to make decisions, to go a certain direction. But there needs to be a a conscientiousness about the direction that we are are going. There's something that I noticed in uh, Bulgaria and in Germany. Uh, They are both extremely energy conscious. I thought we were here you know, changing light bulbs and things like that. But if you, uh, in, in both of those countries, if you walk down uh, a hallway or uh, uh, and also there, there are lifts and water closets. Oh, I'm sorry, that elevators and restrooms. That's what we say on the continent over there. Anyway, if you, if you go in those they have timers on their lights. So if you, you can turn a corner and you're going to walk down a hallway and it can be dark down at the end. You can't even see down at the end. And you begin to walk and a light comes on. And then as you make your way down the hallway, lights go off behind you. But you have to move ahead. And you've got to follow the light If you you stop, you won't see what's on ahead. The Apostle Paul has already talked about walking in the light. That's his theme at at this point. That's what he continues to say we must be doing. Now, how do we do that? Well, one way is to be conscious about what you do in the direction you're heading, making Christ The center. We would call that having a Christian world and life view. In other words, everything we do ought to have Christ right smack in the middle of it. He's not an add on, but He is at the beginning and in the middle and at the end. So we should look at the world. Through that lens. Now, the other side of that is if we aren't doing that conscientiously, then foolishness is the default. If we don't uh, walk and look carefully, we'll slip into unwise living. Let me give you a couple, just a couple of examples. If you don't decide priorities for your family, for your children, for your household, the world we live in will decide them for you. Or your children will decide them for you. But from a, from a, a Christian world and life view, instead of that, we ought to be guided by the Word of God with the honor of Christ, the glory of Christ, as our primary goal, so that every decision that is made within our household ought to be surrounded by that. And I promise you, if you don't do that, if you let the world determine your priorities, you will not be led closer to Christ you will be pushed farther away as a family. Another area is uh, simply in the area of uh, use of finances in a Christ-honoring way. You know, if you don't conscientiously make that determination, you'll be quickly relieved of any decisions about your finances because they won't be there for you to to decide about. But instead, every financial decision should be a spiritual decision. Christ-honoring, Christ-guided decision. So we must make conscious decisions in the new community. And then he goes on to Continue to talk about wise living means redeeming the time. Look at verse 16. He says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, there are different words used in uh, the New Testament Greek having to do with time. There's words for minutes, hours, ages, years, those, those kinds of things. Those would be under the, the general Category, uh, and, and the word, I'm, I'll say it because uh, it'll sound familiar, is chronos. Think chronology. So one thing following another. That's, that's one way that in, in the English it's, uh, it's translated time. But in this passage, Paul uses a different term. He uses the term kairos. Kairos. Now, that term is different in this way. It's talking about a a specific moment given to us by God. Something something that he's given to us that is significant or favorable. Jesus talked about, sometimes about his time not yet being at hand or his time drawing near. That's what, this is talking about here. Now Psalm 139 tells us that all the days of our life are ordained for us before one of them comes to be. If you really believe that, would it make a difference in your life? Now here's here's one, this is a gift from God I think that None of us knows how many days there are. You know, sometimes we'd like to know how many, how many days. I, I wouldn't want that. I'm like, just surprise me, God. You know, it's, it's fine. I don't want to know how many. But if you did know how many, would that make a difference? That's a question to analyze how we're using the time that he has given us. If I gave you $86,400, could you figure out something to do with it? Yeah, you're, you're all saying, of course I could, yeah. That's how many seconds we have in a day. Now, here's the thing about that. We all have the same amount of time. We all have all the time we need. God has seen to that. So if we don't have time for something important, then there's one of two problems. Either we're doing the wrong things or <coughs> excuse me, we're doing the right things in the wrong way. You know, there are many good things that we can be doing. But we ought to be seeking What God would have us do. Paul says, Seize the moment, seize the day for Christ. Not for your own best, but for Christ Himself. And then he says, The wise living means considering the will of God. Verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, some of you immediately when you hear that would think, well, if I knew what it was, I'd be glad to understand that. I don't know who first said this. I heard it early in my ministry, and, uh, and I've repeated it many times. If you ever come across who said this, let me know, and I'll be glad to give them credit. But, but I heard somebody say at one point, God has revealed 90% of his will to us in his word. And we spend all of our time trying to figure out the other 10% that he hasn't. Isn't that the case? In other words, we, we sometimes get frustrated by the small portion of his will that we We don't know when we're ignoring the 90% that He's clearly revealed to us in His Word. I I was serving in a previous church and a young couple came in. They made an appointment. They they came in for counseling. And by the way, if if that couple were here, they would share this with you because it became a part of their testimony. This couple came in and they said, we're struggling with knowing God's will for our marriage. I said, okay, well, uh, tell me more. Well, here's, here's the question. They'd been married for just a few years, and they said, with the world the way it is, we don't know if it's right for us to have a child and bring a child into this world. And we just want to know what you think about it. You see, they had other friends that had made the decision, we're not going to have children because of the way the world is and, and so on. Now, you need to understand when people come into my office and you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not flippant giving advice, and I, I don't use just pat little answers. Uh, uh, and I, I kind of caution you because this is almost going to sound like that. They asked me what I thought of that, and I said, uh, well, first of all, I can't tell you whether it's God's will for you to get pregnant and have a child But I can tell you, it's his will that you try. That's no secret. It's in Genesis. It's throughout the scripture. Be fruitful and multiply. That is one of the primary reasons for marriage. I can't tell you how happy they were when I told them that. They went flying out of my office. and uh, (laughs) Less than a year later, I was baptizing their little boy. And on the day we moved away from that church, we were packing up the the moving van. They came over with their child and, and thanked me again. Now, I'm not saying that to make me the hero. I didn't do anything except share with them what God had said. Most of what He wants us to do is no mystery. There was an example where their friends and the world was telling them one thing and it only brought confusion, but they wanted to walk in the light and when they listened to God's Word, it was clear to them. Their path was clear. Fourthly, walking wise has to do with emptying. Of what? Look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Now, that is not just a statement of morality. In other words, it's not just a, a, a verse that prohibits the use of alcohol. Although for some, maybe for some in this room, it has to be prohibited because you can't use alcohol without violating this verse. Think about the, the whole idea of, of him talking about people getting drunk. What happens when one gets drunk? Well, there's, they're less in control. They're more prone to sin, probably sin that if they were sober they might have Self control over, but it's bigger than that. That's not all he's saying here. This is speaking apart for the whole. Instead, he's cautioning, I am convinced, against using wine or anything else as a replacement for what you should only be seeking in God, what you should only be seeking. By his Holy Spirit. Let me explain. Why do people get drunk? You don't know, so let me tell you what I've heard, okay? Escape from problems, pressures, or life in general, or pain, comfort comfort, or to have fun, joy, right? That's why some people do that. Do you see how those are some of the very things that, that God tells us that's what His Holy Spirit provides? And so what He's saying is, instead of receiving this precious gift of being filled with the Spirit, you're seeking something that is, is so temporary. You can get drunk and you may find escape and you may find comfort. You may have fun, but it's temporary. And you will get sober again. And you will feel worse And the only way you can cope with it then is to get drunker the next time. Here's the sad thing. It is taking something, wine in this case, that when it's used rightly can be appreciated and enjoyed and it's perverting it. It's misusing it. And that's dishonoring to God. So, the one part of this is the emptying, but you can't just empty that out of your life. He says, He gives the alternative, verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, biblically, it's the Holy Spirit that is the source of comfort and joy. But rather than escape from reality, it gives grace and strength to walk through reality in a godly way. By the way, one commentator suggested that it's it's probable that in that phrase, do not get drunk with wine, saying that to the people in Ephesus, that it's an allusion to the orgies of Bacchus the festivals that were celebrated in honor of that pagan god, the god of wine. During those festivals, men and women uh, uh, regarded it as an acceptable act of worship to become intoxicated and do the wild things that followed after that. They looked at that as worship. Do you see how perverted that was? Now Paul is saying... You're the new community. That's not how children of the living God act. And then he does go on, and that's why that previous commentator, it makes sense, because he talks about worship and thanksgiving. Paul's given the alternative to getting drunk with wine as worship. He says, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul shows the priority of of worship. If you are seeking God's will, worship. If you're wanting to seize the day, what better use of your time than worship with God's people because it's in worship that God reveals himself. Now, he talks about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which, by the way, we have done all three today. Typically, we sing a psalm or a hymn that is inspired by a psalm. We read psalms to one another. And today we've done all three. It's interesting that in this, in terms of worship, we see the horizontal and vertical aspects of worship. The vertical, of course, is where it says making melody to the Lord and giving thanks for everything to God the Father. So worship in the Spirit is first and foremost to God. But there is also a horizontal aspect of it, and that's the fellowship aspect of worship, as we address one another with your heart. Now, I understand that you probably aren't the ones that need to hear, especially this next statement, because you're here today, and this is one of those days where, uh, and some of you might have gone through this. You heard the rain beating down on your roof as you were trying to wake up. And you thought, oh, this is going to be off. What a great day to sleep in. And, and I'm proud of you. You didn't do that. Or at least you didn't do it all the way through worship. You might have, <laughs> even if you missed Sunday school. But next time you're tempted by that, if, if you're, or if you're one of those that thinks, Watching church at home on TV is the same thing as being here. Interesting, I hear that. Oh, you know, yeah, we didn't, we didn't make it, but we watched uh, Dr. So-and-so, you know, I won't name that, you know, some, some church downtown, you know, <laughs> or some church out in California. And I've never done this, and I never will, but, but I, you know, in my flesh, I'm so tempted to say, well, you know, the next time you're in the hospital, why don't you call the pastor out there? <laughs> I've never said that, but it's just under the surface for we, for we pastors. Uh, But look, there is a beauty in corporate worship together. There is something that takes place when we are together and worshiping that simply cannot take place when you're by yourself or when you're at the beach or when you're, you know, I'm not saying you can't worship anywhere in the world, but this is a calling for our being together now i've i've just only begun to scratch the surface on this passage and in several weeks mark rattray our director of worship and arts is going to expand on this you will want to hear that as we talk more about the 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 primacy of worship here the last phrase in this section has to do with submitting Submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. Now, that's the transitional phrase. The, the next message we have in Ephesians, we're going to spend the entire time on this one verse because it connects, it connects this with the whole next section that talks about family relationships. Remember our opening, the opening story I told you about the Chicago River? As I said, I didn't just tell you that because it's an interesting story. In, in the Christian life, there's a similar principle at work in our relationship with Christ. What Jesus does, though, is even more astonishing. He uses the work of the Holy Spirit to reverse the flow of, of that Sludge in our life. That default mode that if we aren't filled with the Spirit, we will become filled with that. Instead of that, that shallow, uh, sluggish, diseased waters that can so easily fill us up. If we're filled with the Spirit, it will flush that and reverse the flow. That's what it is to live as the new community. To live in this world and not of it. Let's bow together. Lord, what... What this passage says is impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit. And so